This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Thanks for joining us again on another episode of Doing Translational Research. I'm Chris Wildeman, director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research and your um, usual host. I have with me today Dan Lichter, um, who's the Ferris Family Professor in Policy Analysis and Management, as well as in Sociology. He's also my work dad, so I might try to embarrass him in a whole series of ways. Um, he's cringing just for the since you can't see his face. Um, so thanks for thanks for joining us, Dan. It's great to be here. Um, so I, you've done sort of a bunch of different kinds of research over your career. And I, I do want to make sure that we get to the translational research angle more broadly. But I guess before we do that, it would just be interesting to hear a little bit kind of about your intellectual trajectory. Like, I know that you grew up in South Dakota. I know that you did your PhD at Wisconsin and were at Penn State for a long time. But I guess just thinking a little bit about sort of research themes and maybe what motivated those would be, I think, kind of cool for folks to have to start off? Well, it's a good question. I mean, uh, I think everything that I do, and I've done a lot of different kinds of research, comes from my background growing up in a large working class family in South Dakota. I'm from a family of 11 kids. Uh, I've always, even early on, wanted to do work on family issues. I've always been concerned about rural places and rural communities and how they develop and grow, uh, and that has informed a lot of my work. I'm also very interested in, over the years, in issues of racial diversity and identity, maybe in part because I grew up around Indian populations, not very many African Americans or Asians, but I was very sensitive to those kinds of issues. It's a very religiously conservative part of the world, and maybe increasingly so over time. So a lot of my work uh, has centered on rural America. It's centered on issues of racial diversity, including segregation, racial inequality, issues of poverty, and that sort of thing. And I think a lot of that comes from my my background growing up, um, where I did. And you know, I've been at land grant schools. I've always had a public policy translational orientation. I want work that sort of matters. You're not embarrassed to tell your mother about, or your family members about. It's not pie in the sky. It's doing work that uh, is obviously interesting and important to a population, not just other academics. So that's, I've always had an applied interest, and why Cornell fits me pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I I think um, I was going to make a joke about how we should talk about religion and family for a while, but then I decided that you would get annoyed at me. Um, I mean, you know, one thing that would be really, really interesting to hear is like, so it seems like we're in this unique moment where rural is kind of hot within the research world and folks are really engaged with those. Could I mean, can you talk a little bit about sort of how your perception is, or what your perception is of how the sort of seasonality in research on rural spaces has um, progressed over your career? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, issues of rural America have always been... Um, sort of segregated. They're sort of on the back bench of social science research. It was stigmatized in a lot of ways, and that's always, that's been the case. I've been working in rural 
issues on rural issues for 40 years. And we had our own society. We were never mainstreamed into the main disciplinary organizations like the American Sociological Association. I think what's different today with the last election and the concerns about rural America left behind and the election of Trump is that people realize now that uh, you know, they're a disadvantaged, marginalized group. They're, they don't have a voice in Washington or felt like they didn't have a voice in Washington. And they want change. They want people to respond. So suddenly there's been a lot over the last two or three years, lots of interest in how we can mainstream rural issues. It's never been the case that rural air issues have been uh, part of uh, the larger discipline until just recently. And my goal throughout my career, and I failed basically, is I've always tried to mainstream. I was president of the Rural Sociological Society. I tried to bring in lots of people who were in the main disciplines and who could relate to issues of rural America or more broadly rural areas around the world. And uh, But I, it was, I was never terribly successful doing that. Uh, so it's good to see some interest, I have to say. Yeah. And you still have at least, what, a good 10 or 20 years left of working, so you, you got plenty of time left. Maybe. So what do you, I mean, I guess, you know, and I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but it, it would just be interesting with the places you've been to kind of hear your thoughts on this. So what do you think places like Cornell and Penn State should be doing for rural populations like how how can the university sort of serve these historically marginalized and historically ignored populations and then like what efforts do you see coming out of those places well uh, to think about what's happening today i think you have to kind of go back to the old land-grant mission from 50 years ago where in some ways the idea was to take research in the university, at least from the land grants side of things, take research from the university and make it useful for populations. Now, a lot of this happened in the physical and biological sciences with hybrid seeds or ways to till the soil and be more productive on the farm. The sociologists were interesting because a lot of times their whole idea was to bring culture to rural areas. Mm. You know, how do you, how do you bring music and literature and the arts to rural areas it wasn't and and also about economic development um today i don't know i think uh what i and i've written about this uh, uh how do you bring in rural issues across the curriculum so to speak you know instead of just focusing on rural issues or metropolitan issues or urban politics how do you actually make rural an important part of the dialogue of any class. It's not always easy to do. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the things that I would like to see happen more often because a lot of the students here still have a, a rural orientation. They come from rural areas, especially in upstate New York, or they've got rural grandparents still. I mean, that's changed a lot. Fewer kids today than a generation or two ago have any familiarity whatsoever with rural areas. I mean, their idea of rural areas is to go to the beach, go to the mountainside and hike or fish or, or hunt. Yeah. And uh, they consume rural issues, rural America, rather than actually know very much about the people there, or they have vacation homes, that sort of thing. 
But there's really two rural Americas. There's those sort of nice places that are amenity-driven that provide opportunities for people to enjoy the environment. But then there are those places that are old manufacturing areas or areas that were dependent on agriculture or timber or mining. And those areas are, are never going to come back. They're going to have a hard time growing. Some of our recent research showed that about 40% of the popula- of uh, rural counties actually um, reach their peak populations before 1950. Yeah. So they've experienced long-term depopulation, and it seems difficult to imagine that many of those places are ever going to return. So if you, you know, if you had like a, if you had a magic wand, what, I mean, I, you know, it's just all around Chattanooga, where I grew up. I mean, you know the basics of that area. I mean, there are towns that these same kind of things are happening to. They either become really wealthy suburbs Mm -hmm. of Chattanooga, or they kind of slowly die off, or they have some touristy or vacation homey mm-hmm. kind of feature, but for for the towns that don't essentially become nice commuter community, commuter communities, and that don't have these other draws, the ones where they're on this like long decline, like what what would you say to people? What would you suggest? Like what should we what should we do? Well, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of people, especially the uh, people in agricultural economics or resource economics. I've always argued for some kind of growth poll strategy like the Europeans have, that is you identify economically viable or areas that have some sort of potential for future growth. You identify those and then you invest in those and let the other ones sort of die off, sort of a triage. The other part of that is that implies some sort of uh, targeted economic development or regional development as opposed to um, identifying particular places that you want to invest in. So what is the economic catchment area of Ithaca, say? You know, and it goes out an hour probably in terms of commuting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So I've always argued for kind of a regional development strategy instead of a community development strategy, one that acknowledges that some places uh, have the potential for growth and that people want to live there, or they can brand it in some way for commercial purposes, recreation, whatever. And other places are going to have a more difficult time. Yeah, this is kind of a bummer so far. I got to say, oh, it's sorry. Been, no, well, it's let me give good. you a, let me give you a, let me give you a more positive thing. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm ready. One of the one of the issues that in for some of these declining areas, and I'm doing work on this now, is thinking about immigration, which is sort of a paradox yeah. today, given the sort of anti-immigrant sentiment in much of rural America. But in many ways, immigrants, new immigrants, especially from uh, refugee populations, but also Hispanics in general, have become the major source of population growth and economic development in a a lot of these rural communities. And they are transforming uh, rural America in a lot of ways. Some people fear this. Uh, Some people embrace it. The business community in particular is embracing it because it provides opportunities for, uh, it, it provides a source of labor, but it also provides consumers. So, and I think we're seeing some of that in some of the agricultural parts of upstate New York. You think of a dairy or you think mm-hmm. about the berry and, or apple industry, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. The vineyards is another example of that. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think that's an interesting aspect of this as well. And one I'm looking at now to see whether, in fact, 
new immigrants are halting the downward decline. And it's not just economic either. We're talking about, in the case of Hispanics, we're talking about a traditionally religious population that's Catholic, that's because of their presence is helping keep some declining churches open or schools, elementary schools open. And I think the, in that sense, they are in many cases welcomed, at least by sub, some segments of the local community. Yeah, and, and really reshaping the age distribution more rapidly than a lot of other possibilities. Well, that's one of the interesting things, because I always say diversity occurs from the bottom up, and we've got diversity in general, America is diversifying, but it's diversifying with kids. Yeah. I mean, the majority of births today are minority births to minority parents. And by the year 2020, the Census Bureau predicts that the majority of all young people are minority, are going to be something other than non-Hispanic white. So my fear has always been that we're not investing enough in today's children, and mm. we're pulling back in a lot of ways with resources that what we do or don't do for young kids today, especially with such a diverse population, with parents who maybe were marginalized, disadvantaged, racial minorities, immigrant population, refugee populations, how are they going to break out of any kind of um, uh, status hierarchy that makes it difficult for them to achieve? And we've got a baby boom population that's uh, aging and will be dying off over the next 20 or 30 years. They're going to be replaced by young people uh, to be competitive in a global com uh, economy. It suggests to me we're going to have to invest more than ever in uh, young people. Yeah. As someone who is entering middle age or who I think you said is squarely in middle age <laughs> at some point, <laughs> I, I could I still get behind that idea. That's um, good. So, so let me... Um, let me ask sort of a, a shifting kind of more, well, or actually there are two more things I want to know, so you can just take them in whatever order. I mean, the first is what are kind of the two or three things that you'd really like people to take home um, from your research? Like what are, the, what are the kind of couple things? And they could be contemporary things or they could be things from further back in your career. So that, that's kind of question one. And then question two is, you know, you've you've been engaged um, in a lot of sort of conversations, um, like the big immigration kind of working group that you were on a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. like and where doing things that policymakers could actually kind of pay attention to, and so it, it might just be interesting to hear a little bit about what you think are some of the the positives of that kind of work, but also what some of the difficulties are. And then after you answer those two questions, you can be done, and I won't bother you anymore today. Okay. Well, it's hard to know what is sort of the most important takeaway messages over the, over the years. I mean, I, I think I have a more general orientation, which is, one that emphasizes how where you live constrains your behavior or provides opportunities for you to live a particular kind of life. So I've always had a, a kind of sociological view. I'm, I'm concerned about the constraints of where people live, the groups they belong to, and that sort of thing. And I think that sort of infuses all my, 
my work. And you see it, for example, some of my early work, I focus, for example, on racial and ethnic differences in marriage. And I was very much interested in what, to what extent things like incarceration or early adult mortality among African-American population affected the opportunities for young black women in the cities to marry, uh, things of that sort. So it, it's something beyond the individual. We have a very competitive, individualistic kind of society here where we think people pick themselves up by their bootstraps. But as a sociologist, uh, I think it's important to think about the sort of constraints of place and opportunity and the geography of exclusion, that sort of thing. So I've always had a kind of geographic focus to a lot of the work I've done, hence my interest in rural issues too, which is probably a second thing that I've been interested in. Because I've been beating the drum on that for 40 years, and it's only recently that people have paid a little bit of attention. Now, when I was on that National Academy of Sciences panel on immigration, it was very rewarding, but I tried to get people to think about rural areas, and, mm -hmm. and I just, uh, that was not something that people were particularly interested in. I went ahead and wrote some things in the report itself about rural areas, but it wasn't something that, uh, I was sort of a broken record on the panel because I thought it was an important aspect of rural areas. I mean, it's linked to agricultural production, it's linked to food, it's linked to diversity in these communities, it's linked to economic development, a whole host of different things. And I thought it was important to cover that part of it, farm labor, another aspect of that. So that, that was uh, uh, an interesting experience and frustrating at the same time. Frustrating in two senses, one, it was you know, it was hard for me to get my particular point of view out there. But the second part of it is, is that nobody paid attention to that report. In the end, we tried to be as nonpartisan, nonpolitical, objective as we could be, dispassionate in every aspect. In fact, we couldn't even say things if, unless there was evidence to support it. And in the end, people cherry pick or they distort with the message. And the politicians uh, uh, tend not to necessarily report the report about the report in the way that is fair or credible, and that's frustrating. Mm -hmm. And that's a major part of translational research, I think, too, is how do you get um, get the message out in a way that's credible. And there has been in the university kind of an eclipse of uh, authority and expertise. I mean, how the university is vulnerable. I mean, how do you compete with all these competing voices out there that may or may not have the same sort of academic and scientific mm -hmm. credibility as mm -hmm is a social scientist in the university or in other research organizations. So I think that's a major threat to research that happens in the university. I mean, we think about that in terms of climate change and things like that, where we've got the climate change deniers versus other people. But, you know, it occurs in the social sciences. Same, same with talk about immigration in particular right now, which has been highly politicized. You know, we've actually experienced declines in the number of undocumented immigrants in the United States over the last five or six years, not increases. There's not much evidence, for example, that uh, immigrants take away people's jobs or even uh, suppress um, wages or, right. I mean, there's a whole host of issues where the evidence or that immigrants disproportionately commit crimes. I mean, none of those things are true, but yet that's part of the day-to-day -day discussion in some parts of the political arena. So it's, a, it's an issue that's frustrating. And I think the university should respond you know, the sort of the reality-based knowledge and expertise. I think that's a major thing that the university should probably emphasize. Yeah. Well, that's a good, you answered all my questions, so good. that's a good stopping point. Um, so thanks so much for 
joining us and for being willing to chat with me. Um, and uh, thanks everybody for tuning in to doing translational research. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.